Hey everybody, it's Joe. Just a quick production note slash disclaimer before this episode starts. When we recorded the Carlitos Way episode, I forgot to shut my window in my uh, the room where I record the podcast. So as a result, you are going to not infrequently hear uh, cars passing by and traffic from the from the road outside my window. I tried to uh, minimize that as much as possible in the post-production, but it was unavoidable on a lot of things. So you're going to hear some cars passing while we discuss. Hopefully it's not too much of a distraction. And this was just happening this week. It's not going to recur or anything like that. I'll be much more mindful about the window situations moving forward. But just so you know, uh, apologies in advance. And try and, you know, imagine you're... In my living room, talking about Brian De Palma with us as we chat. Uh, otherwise, thank you for listening. It's a really fun episode, so hopefully it doesn't uh, deter you from listening too much. And yeah, have a good time. This episode is supported in part by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to supporting storytellers. Authentic stories can inspire new ideas, entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their program and plan your visit for award season weekend, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. Oh, wrong house. No, the right house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. If you kids nowadays, the shots on you, Mr. You fly up in the air, man. Who are you working on? Retired. 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 I got a good feeling about this club. I think we're gonna make some real money. But as soon as I make my 75, I'll split. Maybe you don't remember me. My name is. Maybe, Maybe I don't remember the last time I blew my nose. If I ever see you here again, you die. Did you ever kill anybody, Charlie? Guys went down. Yeah. You just do what you gotta do to survive. Now I give you a million bucks to make a simple payoff, and nothing happens. The contract's already down on your palm. You're gonna end up in that river out there. I'm asking for your help. Yeah, well, I ain't dealing. I ain't going back to prison, no matter what. I said you would break my heart, child. Hello, and welcome to the This Hot Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that cannot wait to cut your hair. Every week on This Hot Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with the hotshot new upstart from the Bronx, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Uh, hello. Um, uh, uh, I don't have any, um, like I didn't prepare any Bronx material. <laughs> <laughs> Benny Blanco what? would have had uh, reams and reams of uh, of ideas and and brags and pitches for uh, Bronxisms. Yes, Bronxisms. This was easily the first. Well, this is the big breakthrough year actually for Leguizamo on a lot of fronts because he's in this and Super Mario Brothers at the same time. Uh-huh. And I know that Super Mario Brothers was the first time I was ever aware of him as a person. I'm sure he had. Now I want to look him up very uh, quickly and see when his uh, one-man show days were. I mean, he, he had a came bunch of from those. the theater 
first, but I don't know if any of the huge one-person shows were quite yet. Right. Let's see. Uh, 1991, he had an off-Broadway production called Mambo Mouth, one of his, uh, where he plays a bunch of different characters. Um, Like, Freak isn't until 1998. Like, that's sort of his big, like, uh, that's the one that was filmed for HBO, and I think Spike Lee directed that one, and it won, I think he won an Emmy for it or something like that, but, uh, uh, but he was already sort of, had at least started doing some of his... Uh, stage shows by this point but this was the big mm-hmm. breakthrough year for him as a as a film presence which is very interesting and it's his uh second brian de palma because he was also in casualties of war very good this is actually for the four main stars of this movie it's a really interesting like four-way intersection of career paths because you have pacino directly after winning his oscar which feels like that was the culmination of such a like long period in his career and then so now it's just like this is sort of the the what's next for Pacino this is Leguizamo just breaking through this is what at the time seemed like Penelope Ann Miller finally getting like she got the Golden Globe nomination is she going to get an Oscar nomination she had been in so many movies up until this point we'll get into it um Mm -hmm. but then her career after this movie she just like she stops getting big roles in big movies. Like it's very, it's well, she gets role roles in like medium sized movies, but they're genre movies. Right. But like, even with the frequency with which she had been working up until this point, like the frequency drops off significantly. And, Mm -hmm. and then of course, Sean Penn, which we'll totally get into, like, this is the big turning point where his career goes from one thing that he had been in, you know, the eighties, he had been in like serious Mm -hmm. movies and whatever, but he was still in many ways. Oh, look, Spicoli's in a cop movie. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like, and then this, he hadn't been in a movie in like three years and it's like total career reinvention. And then it begins like the Sean Penn that we will see throughout the nineties and two thousands. So right. The weird overalls basically. Right. Well, and also just like the or critically the, acclaimed Sean stuff. Sean Penn weirdo. <laughs> well, uh, but like at this point, starting with this movie, it becomes like Sean Penn critically acclaimed star. Sort of, it's sort of like how I want to say it was around maybe American Psycho, where like Christian Bale just started getting critical raves and never stopped. Like he had mm-hmm. been sort of like swing kids and little women and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, oh, it's like, you know, handsome uh, Christian Bale. And then all of a sudden it's just like, no, Christian Bale is going to be giving you uh, a, a Academy Award worthy, if not, you know, even if he didn't start getting nominated for a while. Uh, that was the box that he was in then from then on forward. And I think that was the case with Sean Penn. We're talking about Carlito's Way, y'all. Um, Carlito's Way. One of our earlier movies. It's our second, uh, well, House of the Spirits I always think of as 1993, but technically it didn't make it to American theaters until 1994. But um, So that was like 94 Oscar race, not the 93. Right. But sort of like we're doing early 90s Oscar stuff for the second time uh, in the last couple months. And... It's interesting because this is just, I was watching the Academy Awards at the time, but like I couldn't stay up to watch all of them. I still had to do the thing where I woke up the next morning to find out that Schindler's List had indeed, uh, you know, swept uh, the top categories at the Oscars that year. Or, um, but like I was definitely aware, I was definitely aware of all the nominees, even if I wasn't seeing them at the time. And 
I was definitely aware that like Carlito's Way was this crime movie that was whatever my conception of prestigious at age 13, like I knew that it was that. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Early concept for me, like even more so than I would have been aware of the Oscars at this time, like billing on a poster means that someone is very important. Mm, So like you see Pacino above Carlito's Way. Like I maybe have more concept of this poster from when this movie came out and I knew that the movie was a big deal, but like... I'd always had this vision in my mind that the movie would be way more intense, and I think it's because the poster scared me as a kid. The poster's fascinating. You mentioned the fact that Pacino's name is above the title, but not only is it above the title, it just says Pacino, Pacino, by the way. It's just Pacino, and the font is, like, a good bit bigger than the font for Carlito's Way. Like, it really just does loom over the entire poster, to the point where if you looked at it very quickly, you'd think that this was a film called Pacino. And and then Sean Penn's name, in a smaller font, is below the title, but still on the poster. Which I think is kind of funny, because I watched the Siskel and Ebert clip for, for Carlito's Way yesterday. And they disagreed on it. Ebert liked it. Siskel did not. Siskel sort of uh, did had a problem with sort of lauding the Carlito character as a, you know, even though he's a criminal and he doesn't seem like he's a big De Palma fan. Um, But one of the things that Siskel said, that both of them said, actually, was that uh, an unrecognizable Sean Penn, and Siskel was just like, I couldn't believe when I found out it was Sean Penn who played this. And I remember hearing that. What? That a lot of, from a lot of corners, I remember that being like a thing that year of just like, I couldn't believe this was Sean Penn. And... It's funny to me that, like, well, his name's on the poster. And I know that, like, maybe, like, as critics, they were seeing this, you know, enough in advance that they hadn't seen a poster for it yet or whatever. Or maybe this was just, like, it makes a good well, story. Oh, I got I, He's I mean, so At the time, so too, you're talking about they've seen fewer Sean Penn performances right. and fewer weird Sean Penn exactly. performances. Exactly. He's still kind of Spicoli, even though he was... What was that cop movie he did that I've now... Was it Colors, him and Robert Duvall, right? That sounds right. Um, and also, like, Casualties I mean, of and War, also there's mentioned. the three-year gap, too, right. of him not being in any movies. And, like, the type of roles that he was cast in in the 80s were still, like, younger male roles. Like, I'm even thinking of, like, again, Casualties of War. Um, right. His last movie before uh, Carlito's Way was a movie called State of Grace that I've never seen, but I'm sort of aware of, because it's him and Ed Harris and Gary Oldman and Robin Wright and John Turturro, and it's like a uh, it's like a cops and criminals kind of a movie, right? A New York cop uh, sure, is recruited sure, sure, sure. to return to his hometown and infiltrate the mob. So it's like one of those movies, which, like, you've seen those movies. And Penn is the star he's on the poster he's got a gun in his hand whatever like it's definitely like sean penn making you know it's a it's an irish mob movie kind of a thing right so it's just like right right. but and then he takes three years off and comes back with carlito's way and yet even still there's this sense of like that movie the cop movie was like he was still like young sean penn playing grown-up roles you know what i mean playing right this is even before dead man walking oh yeah right dead man walking's not till 95 right Mm -hmm. um 
And I think also the fact that, like, it's a supporting role. He really does, like, for as much as you can definitely tell, if you know Sean Penn from, like, the decades of him being in movies, it's definitely Sean Penn. But, like, he's got the, like, little blonde, you know, Afro uh, hairstyle, perm, you know, perm hairstyle. Um, Which and- is fascinating to just, like, stare into and, like, lose your concept of reality as you look into his, like, ginger locks. Right. Um, I couldn't tell if it was real or a wig because knowing our concept of who Sean Penn is yes. and who Sean Penn is now, I'm, I, you could conceive that he would do that to his scalp. Now I'm picturing him in, like, the hairdresser's chair with, like, the curlers, like, the tiny little curlers in his hair and, like, the little sort of, like, you know, tinfoil uh, for hair coloring and whatever and just, like... You know, with putting the giant big over the head hair dryer down, and it's just like we're getting Sean's hair perfect. <laughs> he shows up to a hairdresser and says, "Please give me the full Richard Simmons. Please give me the Barbara Streisand in The Star Is Born. That's that's yes. exactly what I want." Um, yeah, he's an interesting one uh, in this movie to talk about. He is in many ways a more interesting character than Carlito, actually, just in terms yeah. of. Um, sort of the where this character ends up going and how important the character ends up being. You really see him at the beginning, and especially... He's really not in the movie that much. Well, and you, you sort of expect him just like, oh, he's the, like, squirrely, you know, can't really trust him as far as you can throw him lawyer. And then all of a and sudden... And yet, he's the only, like, character that forwards the plot yes. in any way. And, like, and significantly does so. Because, like, halfway through the movie, all of a sudden... You're at Rikers Island, and he's there meeting with another client, and you're just like, "Why are we following him on a in a storyline that doesn't seem to involve Carlito in any way?" And it's just like, "Oh, okay, like this is where this plot is going, and and it's the pen character who's taking us there." All right, okay, it's interesting. And then he's not in the last like half hour of this long movie. It's a but long like- movie. It's two uh two and a half and a little bit of change. Um. Yeah. I will say, for a movie that's that long, it is incredibly not plotty, but then right. I still feel like it was kind of a breeze. Like, I have kind of... It wasn't of... that interesting, but it didn't feel like it took up... It, it wasn't, like, yeah, super slow, you know? I have sort of developed uh, a slight allergy to mob movies in general. I feel like I've seen so many of them, and so many of them are great. Of course, I love the Godfather movies. Of course, I love Goodfellas, like, uh, you know, yada yada. But, like, you you get so many of them. It feels like every actor feels like it's a rite of passage to make their mob movie. And there's such, like, towering... The, t- the legacy of the mob movie in, in American cinema, especially, is so... Uh, is looms so large that everybody feels like they want to do a mob movie at some point. And it's just, at some point, I got numb to the characterizations and the plot stuff. And it, like, for as much as you want to, like, try and shake up the mob movie, it's, you know, if I've seen one double cross, I've seen them all. If I've seen one, you know, uh, uh, low level snitch wearing a wire. Or a uh, a mob boss go from zero to murderously angry in one scene. You know, you've seen them all. And this movie, I at least appreciated the fact that 
Pacino's performance, and again, this is Pacino coming off of Son of a Woman, which was like, you know, the hua of it all, we know. This is a really... Right. Buyer's remorse. <laughs> this is a really quiet... For Pacino, I will say. Like, for Pacino, this is a pretty quiet, a pretty interior um, performance, and it's and it's not the typical mobster in that, like... And he's not exactly like mafia, right? He's like a... He's a drug-dealing criminal kingpin. Mm-hmm. Who's just out and of he's also a character too. Like, if there's anything like original to kind of be glossed from the genre here, is that the protagonist is somebody who's trying or saying that they're trying to get out of a life of crime, you know, and move away from it, and is pulled into yes. it by you know inner circle, whatever. And unlike a lot of the movies where that is the plot, I believe it in this. I really like he really plays uh-huh. this character in a way where it's just like he really doesn't want to get involved in this. He doesn't like it's not even like he's being like emotionally pulled back into it. You really, you know, you believe that angle on him and I think a lot of it is because of the Pacino performance. And that went yes, a long I believe way it because of performance. But yes. the way that the movie is plotted is yes. just like not uh congruous to that like he gets out of jail and immediately goes on this drug run with his cousin right right just because the cousin's like people would like to see you and say hi right and well and to the point where at some point in the movie the penelope ann miller character who plays his love interest um spells it out like in plain words it's just like you can't ever go clean because everything in your life that you know uh will draw you back into this life and it's just like right that's like that's the plot like thank you i guess for telling us that but uh yeah but i think i think it's the pacino performance in particular for me and in many ways the pen performance and character which is giving me something that i didn't really expect from this movie um but pacino's performance and his character are what make this more palatable as a like career criminal film to me so Mm -hmm. i appreciated that at least i don't like I didn't fall head over heels in love with it or anything like that, but it's a good movie, I think. It's a good movie. I mean, it's a good movie. Outside of, like, you know, hip-hop culture, the movie is kind of gone and, like, not talked about at yeah. all. Yes, yeah. And well, it, it was a better movie than, I think, you know, it's kind of non-existence, even when you're talking about, like, Brian De Palma. right. Um, well, and we'll get into it. We'll get into it when we talk about why it didn't, you know, succeed with Oscar. But like for a movie that's eighty-one percent Rotten Tomatoes, and like the farther you go back with Rotten Tomatoes, the less reliable that number gets because they're really not pulling everything. Um, yeah, when you read like the history of this, it seems like it was more of a critical disappointment. Yes, and it's like it could be the type of movie that, like, sure, it gets an eighty percent, a begrudging but those are, like, thumbs up, mixed right. positive, right, right, right. Well, and a lot of the stuff was it's Pacino and De Palma doing the mobster thing again after Scarface. A lot of people were like Pacino, who, by the way, is playing a Puerto Rican character in this film, which we'll definitely get into. Um, oh thought that his accent would veer into Frank Slade from Sound of a Woman every once in a while. I didn't quite hear that. I think at some point, it's just, you're hearing Al Pacino, and Al Pacino sounds like Al Pacino, and whatever. Right. Um, but there was a lot of, if you, uh, looking back at the reaction of it, it did feel like it was a lot of nitpicking, except for uh, Kaya du, du Cinema, who put it as their, like, 
number Best one movie of, of the, the 90s. decade of the 90s, of the whole 90s. It was like this. Wasn't it tied with like Bridges of Madison County and some third yes, movie? Yes, and Goodbye South, Goodbye. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and it's funny because you look back and like in the year 93, when Carlito's Way made their top 10 for that year, also that, er, no, wait, sorry. No, no, no. It's when you look I'm at their, pulling it up now. their best of the decade year, obviously, their best of the decade list obviously came out in 1999. So they also did a best of 1999 list. And Clint Eastwood's Space Cowboys also made that list. So it's just like, all right, I, we, like, we get it. You really they love, do love Clint, Clint Eastwood. And yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure they also love De Palma as part of yes. it. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We love the Kaye. They, um, they, uh, they're a go bunch a of wild, though. Bunch uh, of freaks. ahead of Carlito's Way in the '93 list, they have a Claire Denis film. Um, so I have to endorse it. Uh, let's let's actually Ugh. do the 60 second plot description before we get too far into this because uh, we got a lot to discuss. I feel like I think more than maybe I I initially thought when I watched the movie because it's like I watched the movie and it's like I don't have a ton to say necessarily about the movie itself, but like I really do think all four of those principal actors are really interest at really interesting career points. So I definitely <laughs> want to get into that. But yeah, definitely. Um, we're going to be talking about Carlito's Way, the 1993 film Carlito's Way, directed by Brian De Palma. This is their second Brian De Palma film after. The disastrous uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, which was two films before <laughs> this for me, or for, for De Palma. Um, written by David Kep, who we should talk about him a little bit, because he's an interesting sort of uh, script guy in Hollywood history. Based on the novels by Edwin Torres, starring Al Pacino as the titular Carlito, uh, Sean Penn, Penelope Ann Miller, Luis Guzman is in this movie, John Leguizamo, James Rebhorn. This is a scent of a woman reunion with uh, Pacino <laughs> and James Rebhorn. Vigo Mortensen shows up as a snitch for one scene, which I knew it was coming because I had looked at the cast list for this movie uh, before I watched. And even still, I was just like, oh, it's Vigo. <laughs> Um, oh boy when you say we won't have too much to talk about the movie we're gonna need to spend a whole like 15 <laughs> minutes on Vigo Mortensen that's a weird scene that's a scene we'll dig we'll we'll definitely get into it um yeah we'll talk about the the, the his, uh, his people dis- saying what they said about Al Pacino in this movie yes um uh this premiered November 12th, 1993, uh, part of a big year, actually, for Universal Pictures, which we will also get into. There was a lot going on at Universal in uh, 93, especially in the last quarter of 93. But before we get into all that, Chris, why don't you roll up your sleeves there and give us a 60-second plot description if you are ready. I think I'm ready. All right, and begin. Okay, Carlito Brigante is released from prison on a technicality, even though he was sentenced to 30 years. He uh, wants to turn his back on crime, but the second he's out, his co- he joins his cousin on a drug big drug sale, and uh, it immediately results in a shootout, leaving everyone there dead ex- except Carlito, who runs away with like $30,000. He invested in a nightclub immediately, um, and soon his uh, addict lawyer, Dave Kleinfeld, uh, starts some shit with Benny Blanco. He's a crime boss in the uh, in New York as well, um, really seconds. wants 
to get in with Carlito. Um, and that's the whole thing. Uh, Carlito's also reuniting with his old girlfriend, Gail, who was a Broadway ballerina, but now she's a stripper and they have sex too. You are so beautiful. <laughs> um, Kleinfeld hopes to, uh, like rope Carlito into a prison break and only results in, uh, Kleinfeld killing the guy. And then Kleinfeld is almost killed for it, but then he tries Ten to frame seconds. Carlito with the feds, but then eventually, uh, he gets killed in the hospital and Carlito and Gail try to go on the run, but Benny Blanco kills Carlito and Gail escapes, um, to an island. And, and that is you are time. so beautiful plays again. Very good. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that it should be legal. <laughs> I don't think it should be morally acceptable uh-huh. to have You Are So Beautiful wow. um, set to a love scene in a movie that is not The Little Rascals. <laughs> a bold statement by Chris File, but he's standing by it. And I appreciate that. Yeah, this movie uh, runs the gamut with the needle drops because you have that. The needle drops in this movie are psychotic. There is a full incredibly tense scene at a nightclub that is happening while uh, LaBelle's Lady Marmalade plays in the background, like in full, like you get the entire full Lady Marmalade. And all I could pay attention to was that. And I was uh, (laughs) obviously like delighted and enthralled by that. Yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a good moment. Good disco tracks, but really out of place. Also, the disco that Carlito invests in in this movie looks like it should be a diner, not a disco. Yes. Well, and it's like, this movie is supposed to be taking place contemporaneously, right? Like, this is this is 90s New York City, 90s nightclub culture, No, right? 70s, I believe. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, then, forget it, then. Um, <laughs> it's just, a, you know... Uh, a scene can only be so intense when Casey and the Sunshine's band, that's the way I like it, plays. Also, uh, something, yes, uh, I'm looking at the soundtrack listing right now. We got That's the Way I Like It. We also have Shake, 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 Shake Your Booty, which, uh, great. Always down to listen to that song. Very weirdly placed in this movie. Yes. Um, obviously, uh, Rock the Boat. There's Disco Inferno. There's a lot of, like, as I said, Lady Marmalade. You Are So Beautiful, as performed by Joe Cocker. The uh, requisite uh, Oya Komova Santana uh, needle drop, which we got. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of... Uh, I bet you this sold a soundtrack. This is, I, bet, uh, I bet it moved you know, a few units as a soundtrack. Except the audience for this soundtrack would be very different than the audience for Carlito's Way. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So... This is, I think, the top sort of the top line uh, attraction for this is it's Pacino and De Palma together again uh, for the first time since Scarface. Now let me look up and see. I believe so. How many times they worked together? But I think that is true, and certainly in the crime boss milieu for the first time since Scarface, which was not an Oscar film was not, probably was not a particularly critically adored film, I imagine. No, it got worse reviews than this movie did. I mean, it could have been in the, I'm pretty sure that that movie was released around Christmas time, so it, and it was a Globe nominee for multiple Globes. But it was a Razzie nominee as well, like. Yeah, so it's like, it's the type of thing that once people saw it, it was immediately out of the conversation. Yeah. Um, but yeah. like obviously Scarface has its own reputation too. And that also almost makes me feel like Scarface is just like 
totally eclipsing Carlito's way in terms of like legacy is concerned, and that like right. we still talk about Scarface and we don't talk about Carlito's way. Right, Carlito's that, way. Like, you could was... promote a movie on it at the time, but right. if it's not as loved and it's not as revered at the time, it's not gonna last you know it's not right. like de niro's every single movie he does with um scorsese, scorsese you know is included in canon right um except for the good shepherd no wait that was de niro's movie that wasn't scorsese that was de niro's movie, movie. yes um, de which i guess movie. proves the point right but yeah carlito's way is probably supposed meant to kind of advance that narrative advance the pacino de palma narrative and it doesn't you're right it can't escape the velocity of uh of Scarface. It's sort of like, remember when Pacino De Niro did that other movie, After Heat? Um, what was that called? Righteous, Righteous Kill? Righteous Kill, right. Where it's just like, why am I watching something called Righteous Kill when, like, we have heat? Like, we don't need... <laughs> We don't need this. Well, I mean, Carlito's Way and Scarface are also incredibly different movies, too. Like, we talked about this in our recent Live by Night episode because that movie was trying to, like, chase the traditional, um, like, old school uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s gangster-style movies, and it Mm -hmm. didn't do it well. Carlito's Way, I think, does that and does it well. Whereas, like, Scarface, even though it's based on a movie from that era, right. is really, like, excessive. It's excessive in the violence, the drugs. Uh, it's basically, like, heterosexual camp. Right. It is, it's like this huge movie, and I think Carlito's Way is way more understated and nuanced, even though it's a De Palma movie. Yeah. I definitely think this is the most chill De Palma movie. <laughs> oh, it's an incredibly it chill movie, and especially for the subject matter, then it could have, you know, written itself a check to, you know, be incredibly unchill. Obviously, Scarface is an incredibly not chill movie, and Carlito's Way makes a conscious choice to go the other way. It's interesting, though, you look at the disaster that was the Bonfire of the Vanities, and, like, really, truly got raked across the coals in so many ways, and it's not like I would expect De Palma as a personality to be um, the kind of person who retreats into old safety nets. But uh-huh. it's interesting that after his two movies after Bonfire of the Vanities, he does Raising Cain, the John Lithgow plays uh, identical twins. That movie's fucking wild. Yes. Like, you can see how that is a post-Bonfire of the Vanities, like, l- please let me do anything else type of movie. Well, and it's also, like, let me maybe go back to the uh, Dress to Kill, Body Double kind of uh-huh. uh, era of my stuff. Deeply strange movie. And then Carlito's Way feels like, okay, well, now I'm going to do, I'm going to reteam with Pacino uh, fall back into my like Scarface or even like Scarface, which was not a critical, uh, critically beloved, but it was a popular hit. And then The Untouchables, which was another sort of movie about organized crime, and uh, that was that did really well, wins the Oscar, obviously for Sean Connery. And so it's like his two movies after The Bonfire of the Vanities feel like a little bit of a reset for De Palma, and then the rest of his nineties into the two thousands are back to like him trying a bunch of different stuff where it's like, it's mission impossible. Um, snake eyes, which is a deeply bizarre movie. Just a really deep, I really want to watch snake eyes after this. The plot of it's pretty typical, right? Where it's like Nicholas cage is at a boxing fight and somebody gets assassinated and he's got to like piece together what happened. But like the way it is filmed is incredibly 
distinct and strange and it's cage so he's like doing his nicholas cage thing um he makes missions like an opening long take that's wild right is it the opening of the movie yes it is yes because it's like because right you have to like check in at everybody all the characters and what they're doing during this boxing fight when something happens so that you can then go back into it after the fact and see what's really going on right but there's yes there's this big long uh uh, a tracking shot uh, at the beginning of that. He makes missions, Mission to Mars, which is sort of his sci-fi movie that gets pretty much ignored uh, at the time. And Destroyed critically, I thought, yeah, too. Yes. Um, makes Femme Fatale in 2002, which not a lot of people saw, but I feel like there were a lot... The people who did were like, don't sleep on this movie. This is actually really interesting. It was Rebecca Romaine before she was really an actress. She was basically just sort of like a model at this point. And yeah, she'd maybe done the first X-Men. Uh, she had point. right. But, it, but the first yeah. X-Men, she really like mystique doesn't really speak very much. She has like one line and then she like, uh, like beats up Bruce Davison with her feet or something like that. Just <laughs> like, so I think at that point people were <laughs> like skeptical. With her feet. Do you mean that she kicks him? No, she like slaps him around with her feet. Like, it's not like just kicking. It's just like, Oh, okay. I think that's in the that one. It might be an X two, but I'm pretty sure it's that one. Um, no, it goes. It's well beyond kicking. We've talked about the Black Dahlia before, which is next his next movie after that, which is for we can't a do it because it's nominated for cinematography or art direction. If not both, hold on a second. Um, no, just nominated his, for I just think the Vilma one. Sigmund shot that. I'm it is. It's sure Vilma. It's it is the Vilma Sigmund uh, cinematography nomination. You're right about that. Just that one nomination, um, based on the James Elroyd novel, sort of a post L.A. Confidential, but make it weird in a De Palma way, which like that tracks. Um, Redacted was another movie that felt like sort of like Femme Fatale, where it's just like, well, nobody saw this, but I know I definitely remember people like making a case for Did Redacted. Did it win something at like Venice? Very possible. Hold, please. I feel like it won a festival prize. It was all, I mean, also on Cahiers de Cinema's uh, top 10 that year. Yes, it won uh, the Silver Lion Best Director at uh, Venice that year. There for we Diploma. are. Yeah, so there we go. And what's his most recent? Uh, I think like his name. most recent is a VOD movie. Mm. Oh, and he also, oh, wait, that's not that, that's. Uh, domino but not the tony scott domino oh but he did yeah that's the vod movie uh passion though we're skipping passion rachel mcadams and numi Ah. rapace in in passion uh which was part of the so much fun it is not good it is truly camp um part of the uh yeah lesbian suspense camp trilogy that it's this and chloe and um uh adore right where it's uh, yes, yeah. Anyway, yeah, passion's weird. Yeah, so uh, De Palma. I always feel a certain type of way when discussing him because I've not seen all of his older stuff, so I don't really have a whole lot of like territory to stand on to make any like big claims about Brian De Palma. But like this, definitely feels like an attempt to get back on solid ground, and probably should have done better than it did. Yeah, I think it's a good movie. I like it. This is maybe the one De Palma that I have seen where I am not at any point like, wow, I hate this. Right. Um, right. Because, like, that's the thing with De Palma. It, like, his style is so gauche and, like, 
goes into some offensive territory and some of his yeah. things like trust to kill. Yeah. Um, but like it's it you can kind of feel your brain expanding while you yes. watch some of his movies, even when you're like you're engrossed in it, but you can also be like, yeah, I'm maybe not having a good time still. Right. Um, definitely, and the... I never really felt that during this. This definitely felt like his safest yeah. movie. But there's still, like, the De Palma-isms. It's still shot like a Brian De Palma movie. There's, like, those split diopter shots throughout the movie for, like, not a yes. huge purpose, but it right. looks cool. Yes. Definitely my first Brian De Palma movie that I ever saw was probably Mission Impossible, followed by Carrie at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But then, like, after those ones, I saw Snake Eyes. And so that was one where I watched it, and I'm just like, I don't the uh, the the language of this film is confusing to me so i think it is not good and i think i sort of like stood by that for a while and then i watched it again on tv semi recently and it's just like it's not that this is a bad movie it's definitely an interesting movie i don't know if it's like if it capitalizes on everything it's trying to do but like it's not boring and it's like i remember what it was doing for a reason like i remember the sort of the bullshit that it gets up to in a way that like, Oh, it's better than nothing. I'm sure there were a lot more forgettable, uh, thrillers in the late nineties than snake eyes. So, uh, you should watch it. And I guess for me, for De Palma, the like definitive one though, it's like, Carrie's amazing. Um, the first mission impossible is way more interesting than we maybe talk about. Yeah. Um, because we're so distracted with, uh, Tom Cruise's, uh, unceasing death wish um whereas like this the death wish stunt in that movie is he like jumps in front of a cascading wall of water like that was the big stunt that could have killed him and it's like okay right call but, me when you're in space but um, the mo- the one that got like showed up best on film and like sh- was in every trailer and whatever was the one where he drops from the ceiling and like stops like to the floor a yeah, millimeter yeah, yeah. before the floor and like that's like that's the coolest shot of the movie um, um, but yeah. like the definitive De Palma movie for me is probably Dressed to Kill, where I'm like, there is absolute like storytelling, uh, filmmaking genius in that movie, but it's all in service of something that's deeply offensive, despicable, right? In multiple right. ways. I had the um, same problem with it. I saw it for the first time only a few years ago, and. I'm like, I'm watching it and I know that like there's some bullshit afoot. So like I definitely like sort of guessed what was going to end up happening because I knew that this was somewhat of a notorious movie. But like all the Nancy Allen stuff in that film is really great and uh and really suspenseful. And um obviously like the the murder of the Angie Di- it's Angie Dickinson who gets killed in that movie, right? Uh-huh. That stuff is incredibly like like memorably filmed and like the 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 film the whatever camera placement and the colors of it and the and the terror of it it's all amazing but yeah in service of a plot twist that is truly deeply despicable and um i never i yes but even before the plot twist there's some shit in it that i find rather sex negative well of course uh, yes but in a way but like anti-woman yes in a way that all feels like of a piece with 1970s cinema but still yeah right yeah um so let's talk about 
post Oscar Pacino for a second because I think that's the big sort of besides the Golden Globe nominations for Penn and Penelope Ann Miller, which we'll get into obviously. The award story of this is I do wonder if Pacino started like signed on to this movie before he was an Oscar winner. And there was a sense of, I bet you there was a sense of, well, if Pacino doesn't win for Scent of a Woman, or Glengarry Glen Ross, because he was nominated for both in 92, um, he's got Carlito's Way next year. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's still, <laughs> it's still good. It's still good. But then we see this a lot of times, with the one exception being Meryl Streep, actually, uh, where an actor or actress is like their storyline becomes why haven't they won an Oscar? And then it happens. It finally happens. Pacino finally wins. Susan Sarandon finally wins for Dead Man Walking. Kate Winslet finally wins for The Reader. And then Julianne Moore finally wins for Still Alice. Right. And then after that, the awards voting community and sort of the the industry seemingly is just like, well, we got that taken care of, and we don't need to... Susan Sarandon hasn't been nominated since uh, she won her Oscar. Pacino didn't get nominated again after Scent of a Woman. It wasn't until uh, The Irishman, right? Almost 30 years between those nominations. Right. Uh, Winslet doesn't get nominated after The Reader for another seven years until Steve Jobs. Julianne hasn't gotten her follow-up nomination after Still Alice, even though she deserved in Gloria Bell, and I will keep saying that. She deserved for Maggie's plan. Just that accent alone is comedy gold. Uh, She's so good in that. Everybody assumed that that was going to happen with Meryl after her third, right? She wins for The Iron Lady, and everybody's just like, we didn't like The Iron Lady. Nobody liked The Iron Lady. Obviously, Meryl, as an actress, deserves to have three Oscars, regardless of context. But the silver lining around her winning for the Iron Lady is, at least we won't have to nominate Meryl for everything now. And, like, that held for a whole one year. Like, 2012 (laughs) happens, and it was no Meryl. And then literally the next time she came around with something in a movie that people mostly didn't like, even though I think it's a good performance, August Osage County comes along, and it's just like... Meryl, we can't deny you. Get over here. And then it's like, it's her post-Iron Lady Oscar story has been as robust as any period in her career ever. She's mm-hmm. gotten nominated for almost everything she's done. It's really been, she defies all uh, all narratives. It's crazy. Boy. But, but so here was Pacino. But right after like Son of Pacino a Woman. Pacino couldn't have gotten nominated for some of these things. Totally. Like, totally. Not like he couldn't have gotten nominated. I mean, 1993 Best Actor is pretty competitive. I should say that. Yes. Um, to the point where, like, Daniel Day-Lewis is giving two great performances in two very Oscar-y movies, In the Name of the Father and The Age of Innocence. He can only get nominated for one, obviously. Um, but, like, Hank's Philadelphia, like, obviously, that's the winner that year. That is huge. Hopkins in Remains of the Day. Hopkins is as, you know, hot as any actor at that point. Like, he's on a real uh, career streak. Liam Neeson for Schindler's List, a no-brainer. The big Steven Spielberg, Oscar uh, behemoth, and he's the title character, and he's great. Like, he's definitely in. And he hasn't been nominated since. It's kind of a bummer. But then again, he's probably not going to get another nomination until he stops making movies that are all indistinguishable um, and just him shooting people listen i loved that movie where he was on the airplane and i 
still kind of liked that movie where he was on the train. And if he makes a movie where he's on a bus, I will probably compare it negatively to Speed, but I will still watch it. So that is what I will say to that. What the people want is high-speed rail. They want high-speed rail for uh, convenience, for, um, you know... uh, uh, global consciousness concerns, right? Uh, our footprint, but we also want high speed rail so that Liam Neeson can make a movie where he is um, killing people on it. Oh yeah, and maybe that. Maybe if Liam Neeson makes a high speed rail thriller, that will be what's necessary to push high speed rail to the forefront of our infrastructure plans in mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. That is my that is my plan. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> we will probably be getting Liam Neeson goes to space and shoots people right. movies before we get Liam Neeson high-speed rail. Because what everybody wants is to go to space. Somehow. For some reason. Couldn't be me. Um, so Lawrence Fishburne gets that fifth nomination at the Oscars. He wasn't nominated Fuck at all yeah. at the Golden Globes, but like that's a rad nomination. Obviously, he deserved. Everybody sort of in the also-rans that year... We're all pretty, I would say, pretty good contenders. Obviously, The Fugitive isn't, like, an actor's bonanza, but, like, Tommy Lee Jones is the winner for supporting actors, so, like, clearly Harrison Ford was in contention for The Fugitive. Ditto Clint Eastwood in in The Line of Fire, somebody who Oscar super loves, and they loved the movie enough to nominate Malkovich. Um, Donald Sutherland, it's still really surprising to me that Stocker Channing was able to get awards traction for six degrees of separation which she deserves she's the best she fucking rules in that movie but like i just watched that movie for the first time yesterday and donald sutherland is hilarious he's hilarious in that movie he's so funny every time he says we could have been killed it's so funny to me um (laughs) the two of them are great together like it's it's very strange to me that that wasn't a his and hers oscar nomination especially because he had never been not like maybe Donald Sutherland truly has kicked the shins of every third Oscar voter and he'll never get nominated because of it. Like who's to say, but like, it's wild to me that he's never been nominated for an Oscar considering all of the times he could have been in movies that like ordinary people, six degrees of separation mash, like nothing. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, he's truly worked with everybody too. You would think yeah, there would be an element of that, that it's like, you know, the way you see uh, like a groundswell for someone like Octavia Spencer, where it's like, of course they're going to win. Right. They've worked with everybody and everybody loves them. Exactly. Um, exactly. Maybe they don't all love Donald Sutherland. It's very but, possible. I mean, as prolific as he is, you would think. That's been, that point. was the line on Gary Oldman forever was why hasn't Gary Oldman been nominated for an Oscar? And the answer was usually like, I don't think anybody likes him who worked with him. And it's like, okay. Um, and that's also what I've heard. God, I don't, whatever. This is baseless Cusack. rumors and whatever. The Cusack, I was just about to say. That's what I heard about Cusack, too. Yeah. Um, but so this is a very competitive Best Actor year. So, like, I, I I think the fact that awards voters could be like, we did just give it to Pacino last year after giving him, like, a bunch of nominations in the early 90s to, like, see what, what you know, what stuck when we threw at the wall. Which is why it's always surprising to me that he didn't get nominated for Frankie and Johnny, because I thought he and Pfeiffer were both good in that movie. Anyway. Yeah. We've done that movie. We've talked about that. But um, <laughs> but the stretch between Oscar nominations, like, there is a lot of garbage in there for Pacino. But there's also things like The Insider, which, of course, Russell Crowe is the story of. I think Pacino's even better in that movie. He's great. He's great in that movie. I mean, Heat is 
doesn't have a single nomination and it's like we could do that but like what are we going to add to this discussion on heat right yeah he like de- the only like, real like awards blip for al pacino is angels in america right which is i think because it was television it was like we've got al pacino on television like i think there was a sense of that too <laughs> where it's just like pacino and streep like throw all the awards at them which is why i'm always very grateful that Jeffrey Wright and Mary Louise Parker were also able to sweep mm-hmm. the TV awards because they weren't the big movie stars in movie in that uh, in that miniseries, and yet they were still like giving you know phenomenal performances. If I were choosing, you know, if the Emmys were just voted on by me that year, I probably would have put Justin Kirk in lead and given him the awards that Pacino was getting, even though I do really like Pacino. People talk about him being really big and really like grandiose and loud in that role as Roy Cohn, but like that's what's called for, for one thing. And yeah, that's the point. And he's so memorable. Like that scene with him and Patrick Wilson, the do you want to be nice or do you want to be effective scene? Was it legal? Fuck legal. Am I a nice man? Fuck nice. They say terrible things about me in the nation. Fuck the nation! You want to be nice or you want to be effective? You want to make the law or subject to it? Choose! Your wife chose. Is so, like, I watch it all the time. It's amazing. And he's, like, he's literally (laughs) just, like, slobbering on the ground. He's that big. He plays it that big. But, like, it works. Like, it's, that's what you want out of that scene. It's so good. And the funny thing about Pacino is, now, he is kind of the TV movie guy, right? He's Jack Kevorkian mm-hmm. in the HBO movie. He's Phil, He's Spector. Phil Spector. He's Joe Paterno in the HBO movie. Like, that's sort of his... Those are the successes of his career now, up until The Irishman. He's Man. on that Amazon show that I will Hunters, which he got a Emmy nomination for? Definitely a Golden Globe nomination. I think got. a Globe nomination for that. I think that's right. Um, and... I think the Irishman once upon a time, he's not in once upon a time in Hollywood much, but everybody loved his scene in that movie. So like, that was great. Um, and I think between that and the Irishman coming in the same year, it feels like we're emerging from this like Pacino wilderness too, where um, the, the Manglehorns and Danny Collins's and, you know, these sort of like small arty movies that nobody saw that also weren't that good. Juxtaposed with the HBO TV movies, juxtaposed with like, jack and jill and that kind of stuff it's just like no okay well now maybe he's in house of gucci the uh i don't even know how oh. to describe what are we what are we gonna I get make it gucci? my fingers are all together in the pointed thing and i'm waving my hands at this you I, are aoc yeah. you are an aoc meme at this point yes for house of gucci. this movie is for the german natas and yet it is a ridley scott movie so like i am trying to temper my expectations um but he's part of that incredibly like this cast astounds me lady gaga adam driver al pacino salma hayek jeremy irons jared leto fine jack houston the baby boy reeve carney who is incredibly attractive is what i will say um he's also in tom ford no less yeah uh, he's also oh, supposed to be in a film adaptation of King Lear that I think is just, it's pre-production or maybe even like just been announced. So like, fix, grain of salt with that, that that is going to happen. 
but I don't know. I feel like we're in a period where like we're we're in a positive career arc for Pacino at this point, which is good. Yes, I agree. Um, so we talked a little bit about Sean Penn's career arc. What do you what What are your thoughts on the performance itself in this movie? Um, I mean, I don't, I didn't, when he showed up in that, uh, full bodied hair experience, <laughs> right? I was bracing for it to be really bad yeah. and it's not, I think he's fine. And I, I wouldn't like nominate him for supporting actor, but like I was expecting embarrassing and I did not think it was embarrassing. He did get the Golden Globe nomination for Supporting Actor, the nomination that ultimately went to Pete Postlethwaite at the Oscars for uh, In the Name of the Father. And also nominated at the Golden Globes that year was Penelope Ann Miller for Supporting Actress, getting the slot that would go to Holly Hunter in The Firm at the Oscars that year. So, And I want to talk about both of those supporting categories at the Oscars uh, in a second. But Penelope Ann Miller's career is really interesting because she really is one of those actresses who has like, she'll still pop up in things every once in a while. But like, I remember she was in the birth of a nation, the, uh, um, yeah, the Nate Parker, the birth of a nation. She was in that. And I was like, of all things to like emerge in, she's in the artist. So like she was in a best picture winner and like, good for her. But like, it really does. Even whenever you see her, it's just like, Oh, uh, Penelope Ann Miller from the 1990s is in a, is in a movie. And, uh, first thing I ever saw her in, and maybe this is true for you as well, but our age is di- our age difference may uh, come into play here. She's her second movie ever is Adventures in Babysitting, where she plays yes Elizabeth Shue's friend who gets stranded at the bus station. Is that Chicago? Is that one of those movies that takes place in Chicago? Pretty oh. sure that's Chicago. Um, yes, it is. And so she's stranded at the bus station. She's, uh, is she in peril? She ends up, uh, her glasses get broken. She's aggressed by a rat. It's a whole, there's a whole lot of stuff happening <laughs> in Adventures in Babysitting. Um, I adore that movie. That was one of my, like, childhood staples. I watched that all the time. It's so good. I, I watched the opening scene over and over It's one and of over. the best Maybe opening scenes. Maybe not the scenes. whole movie. It's one of the best opening scenes in movies. Um, there is a homophobic joke about Thor, the superhero of Thor, that uh, I do not stand by at this point. Said by, I'm pretty sure, Anthony Rapp, which is uh, uh, oh, curiouser and curiouser. Um, but like, okay, I have two yes. uh, formative Penelope Ann Miller movies. Obviously, Kindergarten Cop, unfortunately. Right. She's the love interest Secondly, in Kindergarten Cop. I don't think we've ever had this conversation, but I was obsessed with The Shadow we the have Alec Baldwin not had based this on the radio series movie. Tell me about it. Tell me about this. I've never seen that movie. Okay, I went as the shadow for Halloween. <gasps> I had the shadow board game. I oh like my God. books. Like, I loved that movie as a kid. Probably couldn't tell you anything about it now. Alec Baldwin, uh, Penelope Ann Miller. Who else is in that film? Let's see. Um, John Lone is in that movie. Ian McKellen is in that film. Yeah. Playing, I want to say, Penelope Ann Miller's father, maybe? Because they have the okay, same Okay, so thing. here's the thing about The Shadow. And, like, The Shadow is definitely, like, a weird version of this, right? But, like, in the early 90s, we didn't have superhero movies, really. We did not. Like, obviously, the Batman movies were a 
big deal and I was obsessed with the Batman movies. Yep. And like I remember my dad taking me to see it because it's like, oh, you like Batman, you're gonna like this. Right. Um and there was like no other movies like that. And I'm probably one of five people who have seen The Shadow. I should try to watch that again. I know it's streaming somewhere. It probably will disappoint me for how much I know I liked it as a kid, but remember nothing at this point. The Shadow, curiously, yeah. uh, the screenplay for that film was also David Kep, which is really interesting. That tracks. Um, that very much tracks. Uh, let's, all right, put a pin in David Kep because I do want to go back to him for a second. So Penelope Ann Miller in that film is also, she's the love interest. Because, like, that was sort of her thing. Like, in all of her big movies, as she goes, she's love interest in Biloxi Blues. I imagine she's the love interest in Big Top Pee Wee. Um, She's the love interest for Matthew Broderick in The Freshman, that film where Marlon Brando essentially plays a parody of his uh, Godfather character. And it's like alligators or something. She's a uh, heel, uh, a komodo dragon. Komodo dragon. There's a komodo dragon. Um, she's very possibly a love interest in Awakenings, the uh, the Penny Marshall film Awakenings. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely the love interest in Kindergarten Cop. She's the love interest to Danny DeVito in a film called Other People's Money. Um, that I remember. Which I have seen, but I remember not. I remember it. commercials for, but I never saw. She is the titular Betty Lou in the gun in Betty Lou's handbag. She's in Chaplin, the uh, the Robert Downey Jr. Chaplin movie. She's right here. She's uh, the love interest in Carlito's Way, and then she's the love interest in The Shadow. And so The Shadow is 1994, the year after Carlito's Way. She doesn't appear in another movie until 1997. She's in something called The Relic that I remember being a, a horror movie terrifying the relic um she's in a movie called little city with josh charles john bon jovi and annabella shiora so there is that but then like dream blunt rotation and then like she's in like a few other movies in the late 90s and early 2000s the only one that i can think like that i recognize as a title is along came a spider in 2001 and then she's just like just in fewer and fewer movies and I don't even remember her being like in like a regular on a major television show at that time. So she just kind of stops appearing in things, which is too bad. And she was never like my favorite actress or anything like that. But like it was, it's interesting that she gets the Golden Globe nomination for Carlito's Way. There must have been a sense of just like after her appearing in all of these movies as the love interest or whatever. Now she's the love interest to Al Pacino in a big, you know, mobster movie mm-hmm. that has Oscar potential. And the Oscar nomination doesn't materialize for her. And then it really feels like Hollywood was like, well, we tried. You know what I mean? Like, well, we made, you know, mm-hmm. as good of an effort. And I mean, who knows what the real story is? And obviously any story with an actress who's in a bunch of things and then stops being in things, I always, you know, now we have to, you know, wonder what the sexist slash predatory implications Mm -hmm. of things like that were after hearing stories about well there's also Mm -hmm. like the other like uh, sexist angle of like we just mentioned she plays basically the love interest in a bunch of movies did she age out of that i've never seen her give a performance that i think is bad but she also is not really given the opportunity to show much versatility right so like i think eventually that does screw performers over right yeah yes i think that's true so, yeah, um, she's in, like I said, she's left out of that Oscar lineup. That's a really interesting 
Oscar narrative, that supporting actress in 1993. Because mm-hmm. Winona wins the Golden Globe. This is the year before the SAG Awards become a thing, so there is no uh, thing. But I remember there being compelling narratives for, obviously, Winona Ryder, because, you know, this was her big breakthrough into Oscar movies after being, like, the universal teen girl of the last, like, five to ten years, right? And mostly for the last five years. Um, Rosie Perez in Fearless, who, again a breakthrough performance from somebody who had been in white men can't jump and do the right thing. And so she had like been, her star had been rising and she's in this Peter Weir film called fearless. She plays a survivor of a plane crash who I believe in the plane crash lost her child. And so she's like going through a huge amount of grief and uh, she's sort of the main uh, counterpart to Jeff Bridges in that movie. It's a very good movie. It's a great performance. So I think people thought Rosie was a contender. And then Holly Hunter is nominated for The Firm, but is also nominated in Lead for the Piano. And Emma Thompson, who had just won Best Actress the year before for Howard's End, is nominated supporting for In the Name of the Father, for the lawyer, whatever the barrister, whatever we call them, uh, over there. (laughs) And then in Lead for maybe her best performance in the remains of the day from that like era of Emma Thompson. I think she's so incredibly good in that movie. Um, and uh, the, uh, the narrative at that time, even though Sigourney Weaver had already disproved it in 1988 was if you're nominated in both lead and supporting in a given year, you'll probably win supporting. So there were like plausible, winner narratives for everybody in that category except for Anna Paquin who ends up winning for the piano. It's really strange but I love like we're talking about this year about how this year's supporting actress and lead actress categories are both incredibly unpredictable and like 93 supporting actress felt like that's that was one of those years. Definitely. I mean I would definitely see more of a narrative for Anna Paquin in regards to, like, it's a certain type of child performance, there's a certain precociousness that, like, we're maybe less prone to it now, like right. Abigail Breslin might have been the final nail in the coffin for it. Um, but there's that Tatum O'Neill narrative, you're not wrong. Yeah. And, like, the piano, the thing about the piano is, like, that was an incredibly beloved movie, premiered at Cannes, yeah. and, like, had a whole, like, almost year's worth of build-up for people to gain affection for that movie. Yeah. But, like, Oscar was never going to give it Best Picture and Best Director because of all of the host of reasons that, like, suck and whatever. And it's also up against Schindler's I List. I was going to say, right? you know, nobody was beating Schindler's List that year. Like, that's the other thing. Exactly. But, but if... like, because the movie is so beloved, they yeah gave it trophies where they could right actress and screenplay the other thing is Mm -hmm. the nature of holly hunter's role because she is mute in that film and she tries to communicate as much as she can with like sign language and and gestures and whatnot but like anna paquin who plays her daughter in the movie essentially functions as her voice in the movie right where she's the one who says things to other characters on behalf of her mother and so if you are as enraptured with that Holly Hunter performance as voters were at the time, then you could easily see why that would spill over also into Anna Paquin. Cause she almost feels like an extension of the, the mother character. 
So, yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. The interesting thing is, over in Supporting Actor that year, it wasn't a contest. Like, Tommy Lee Jones was was winning that. Like, that didn't seem like there mm-hmm. was much of... Even though I think Ray Fiennes is phenomenal in Schindler's List and, like, terrifying, um, and probably would have gotten my vote, but, like, Tommy Lee Jones, that's a real showboaty performance in The Fugitive in a way that really works. And... The Fugitive is a sneaky, perfect movie, actually, and, like, super rewatchable. Like, go and, like, find that on a Saturday afternoon and just, like, watch it and enjoy yourself. It should rewatch that movie. Oh, it's super good. Um, I think those are the two, your two top contenders that year. What did you, where, where do you come down on the different performances in Supporting Actor that year? I mean, I still haven't seen In the Line of Fire or In the Name of the Father, but, like, I, I, still like i understand why tommy lee jones won and i think especially in supporting actor that kind of performance is always going to have an edge to win um especially in it's like it's a broad movie that like they might look askance at giving it something like a bigger prize like best picture right but like yeah my vote would be ray fines yeah fines is fantastic leonardo dicaprio gets his first ever oscar nomination that year for what's eating gilbert grape but yeah, Tommy Lee Jones was winning that thing the whole time. Um, it's interesting. I am still kind of surprised that Sean Penn didn't get the nomination that year, even more so than Penelope Ann Miller. It feels like so much of the narrative around Carlito's way, even if you didn't like it, Penn was getting raves sort of, you know, everywhere and mm-hmm. probably went a lot, a long way towards him getting nominated two years later for Dead Man Walking. Oh, definitely. That feels like, you know, just the stepping stone to the first Oscar nomination type of performance where it's like you're just in the right movie with the right people. I want to hop over to David Kep for a second, though, because I keep threatening to do so. He's one of those actors (laughs) who, if you have a big budget film by a major director, you may end up... Especially a genre director. Right. He's been... And I... It, it feels like he's maybe the guy you bring in to take a second pass at a screenplay or there's a lot of like co-writing credits on these kind of things. He's a co-writer on Jurassic Park, which is the same year as Carlito's Way. Um, Death Becomes Her, Your Beloved The Shadow, as I mentioned. Um, <laughs> the Paper, the Ron Howard movie, The Paper. He co-wrote along with Robert Town and Steven Zalian. Again, feels like there were multiple versions of those scripts and like that's the credit that uh, shook out. This is on a Mission Impossible. Um, Snake Eyes, he co-wrote with De Palma. So he works with De Palma a lot. He ends up working with Spielberg a bunch on War of the Worlds, on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Works with Ron Howard a good bit on... um, Angels and Demons and Inferno, that kind of thing. Um, uh, there was one other thing. Oh, yes. Well, uh, he directs Mordecai. <laughs> he directs Mordecai. So there's that. Um, he directs also Premium Rush, which I remember people liked. Um, and Ghost Town. I like Ghost Town. And Ghost Town. And Stir of Echo. So yeah. So he's got he's got some interesting director credits as well. He's uh, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot on his uh, resume, let's say, which is uh, you never really ta- hear him talked about as like an au- an auteur's writer. Do you know what I mean? Where like he's mm-hmm. 
you you're never really going to be like you know do the charlie kaufman thing with david Kep. and yeah well, he's also like one of those major studio screenwriters that it's like people have definitely heard his name from various like massive movies but like you're like that's funny that he doesn't have an oscar nomination until you actually look at the screen credits and it's like oh it, no it makes sense right exactly exactly um and he's adapting from a a series of novels, two sp- particular novels uh, by, as we said, Edwin Torres for this. And parts of Carlito's Way definitely feel like, oh, I can see where this is sort of coming from a book. Obviously, the voiceover narration is a big one. Um, but it's such a mood movie, and it's such a, again, so focused on the Pacino performance that I don't really think of the screenplay uh, a lot of the times, unless I may be thinking about some of the weaknesses of it, like the fact that Penelope Ann Miller's character really exists to tell Carlito things about himself um, that the that the screenplay would like you to know or like to underline for you. Um, I think a lot of the big things about the movie that I really like that are Pacino are De Palma stuff. That scene, the shootout scene in Grand Central, is really well done and some mm-hmm. really memorable. The image of Pacino going on his back down the escalator to avoid getting uh, seen by the mobsters who are pursuing him is really, really cool stuff and like incredibly mm-hmm. memorable. And a better staircase scene than De Palma did with the Untouchables, yes, which is at a different train station, right? At... I, I'm sure there are people that would jump down my throat for saying this, but that scene in the Untouchables is laughable. It is well, and that was supposedly it's ridiculous. Su- that's that was a uh, an uh, intentional riff on the battleship Potemkin scene, right? Sort of where, right. Um, but like, but sort of groaningly so. Like you, it, it felt. Uh, it's half the runtime of the movie. Yes, it really. Is. That goddamn baby mm-hmm. in a pram. In a pram. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, love the Grand Central scene in Carlito's Way. I think it's incredibly exciting. And yeah, what else do we want to talk about? What else do you want to talk about, Chris? Uh, I definitely okay. So we talked about the second worst thing about the movie, which is the needle drops. <laughs> yes, we definitely have to give some time to what I think is the worst thing about the movie, and that is Viggo Mortensen. Oh, go off. Okay, so. Pacino gets uh, like bad reviews for his Puerto Rican dialect when he is very um, not Puerto Rican in this movie. But like, did they not? Did they go to the bathroom in the in Vigo Mortensen scene? Which is like, I don't know how he had a career after that. It is like the grossest characterization of a Puerto Rican person, and it is shocking. I think there's so much going on with that character, though, at once. Whereas there is that. It's the, you know, the fact that he's trying to play a Puerto Rican, which is insane. Um, But, like, he's such an obviously, like, squirrely snitch of a character. So, like, that's also... And he's... He was, like, in prison, and he got really roughed up in prison. And he, like, he talks about how he, like, shits in a diaper now, and he's in a wheelchair. There's just a lot of, like, really... um, like gaudy stuff about that scene sort of beyond 
uh, everything else that's going on there. But uh, yeah, so that's the scene that I was nervous that this movie would be, mm. and it really isn't, except for that scene for the most part. Yes, um, and I think the movie is conscious of the fact that it will pull back from the scenes that are like that, which is good, which I'm uh, uh, thankful for. What did you think of Leguizamo in this movie? We talked a little bit about him. I this always love John break. Leguizamo. He's, I've never not loved him. He's incredibly effective in this movie because you really, you get as irritated with his character as Carlito does basically from the break, right? Where he's so annoying. Mm-hmm. He's so insufferable. He won't shut up. He won't leave Carlito alone. And those are always the most dangerous characters, right? Those are the ones where it's just like, ah, you don't even consider them a threat because he's such a little fucking pipsqueak. And um, he's obviously like way more bluster than his bite. And Pacino roughs him up in the club the one night and throws him down a flight of stairs and like spares his life. And that's the big operatic thing, right? Where he like, he spares Benny Blanco's life and it comes back to haunt him uh, by the end of the movie. But yeah, Leguizamo is like, instantly electric and like instantly like you are paying attention to his character this is again same year as he played luigi mario in uh, uh, super mario brothers the movie which is not like in the top 10 of weird things about super mario brothers the movie uh dennis (laughs) hopper's performance as king koopa is must be seen to be believed and i genuinely feel like Super Mario Brothers the movie was going to get made for a lot of reasons, one of which being Nintendo in the ni- in the late uh, 80s and Super Mario Brothers as the emblem of Nintendo was so successful that eventually they were going to make a movie out of it. Even though like video game movies weren't really a thing, but like it makes sense that that was the the thing that jumped that trend. But like part of me feels like Super Mario Brothers the movie exists because somebody looked at Bob Hoskins and they were like he could be Mario. Let's think about that. <laughs> Let's think about doing that. And it happens. I don't know. But then two years after this is uh, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Another great John Leguizamo performance. Perfect performance. We love. We love him in that. So, yeah. What else did we want? To- oh, Universal Pictures this year was a real moment. So we talked about Schindler's List, another universal movie, and In the Name of the Father, a universal uh, movie. So like Carlito's Way was up against it. Where like even if the reviews were better, even if there wasn't this like shadow of Scarface, it was going to take a lot to draw any of the studio's attention/promotional budget away from schindler's list especially and if another movie was going to do it it ended up being in the name of the father so Mm -hmm. uh tough one for uh for carlito's way there this is also the year of jurassic park so like universal is like love and life at this point this year for a year that started have a lot of money for a year that started off with uh with cop and a half in april like they really uh (laughs) their fortunes took a turn um they also had heart and souls. I remember souls. going to a drive-in, and it was a double bill of Jurassic Park and Cop and a Half. Yeah, yeah, that would fit. That would make sense. Um, interesting year for Universal. I'm just going to point out a few. Obviously, I love Heart and Souls, and I know you do too. 
I do. Phenomenal supporting cast in that movie. That's the one where Robert Downey Jr. is essentially raised by the ghosts of four people who died. Uh, Alfred Woodard, Kira Sedgwick, Tom Sizemore, and... Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin? Charles Grodin. Yeah. Yep. Uh, just a delightful movie. Alfred Woodard and Kira Sedgwick especially. Unsurprisingly, I gravitate towards the two uh, lady ghosts, but uh, they're amazing. <laughs> also, like... Elizabeth Shue's all business haircut in that movie is formidable and something to be uh such sensible uh skirt suit. <laughs> yes, she is a uh the living embodiment of the sensible skirt suit in 1993 is Elizabeth Shue. Uh very true. They did the remake. Okay, so wait, Sorry. Heart and Soul, correct me if I'm wrong. They he is basically raised by these four ghosts because they all die in like a bus accident where either he is a baby or he is born on that bus am i wrong i'm gonna all right i think you're you're if you're not exactly right you're mostly right yes um because i think they take a bus together or no 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 no. when he helps them fulfill like whatever um when he helps them fulfill their uh like goal that they didn't get to meet because they died they go back on the bus. Here's what they it go is. go on the ghost bus. Do you remember who drives the ghost bus? Uh, isn't it someone like Clint Howard? It's Well, you're in the right ballpark. It's the better Clint it's Howard. It's someone like uh, it's, it's, Scummy. It's, right? David, it's David Paymer. Uh, hot off of his Oscar nomination for Mr. There Saturday Night, David yes. Paymer. So what, the, what it is, is Sizemore, Sedgwick, Woodard, Groden are all on this like trolley bus in like the late 1950s. The trolley bus, I believe, swerves to avoid a car and crashes, and they all die. And the driver does too. The car that they had swerved to avoid um, was the parents of Robert Downey Jr.'s character driving to the hospital to have him be born. So Downey Jr. is born, uh, and then those four become his guardian angels. And... Then he grows up and becomes like a business person and he cares about money and whatever. And they like, they need to like correct his course. And so they figure out um, that they can like inhabit his body <laughs> to get him to do. And they, great. Cause they find out from the David Paymer character that like, you need to like solve your unfinished business so you can get to heaven. So you will stop being restless uh, ghosts and they need to inhabit Robert Downey Jr.'s body to like make that stuff happen. And then it does. And then it's very sad because then they go to heaven, which is nice for them. But, you know, he loved them. Great 90s movies. Great. Uh, from Universal about ghosts with unfinished business. Heart and Souls and Casper. <gasps> True. Casper is the year after this, right? Casper is 94. This is the film festival we're going to program. Yes! 90s uh, Universal movies about ghosts with unfinished business. You program that one. I will program the movies that exist only as titles uh, film festival. It'll be great. Um, What else is in 93? Obviously, Dazed and Confused. Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, which I love and which has everybody in it. Judgment Night, the the movie that that finally brought together... Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary, Stephen Dorff, and I want to say, is Ice-T in this one? Maybe not. But anyway, Judgment Night. I don't think Ice-T's in that one. Um, We're Back, a dinosaur story, which I never saw, but exists as like a poster that I see all the time, weirdly. They're back! They're back! They're dinosaurs. They're back! 
Um, A Dangerous Woman, the Stephen Gyllenhaal directed movie with uh, Deborah Winger. Did you ever see that one? Uh, Movies that exist only as a poster. Yes. For me. Uh, As a uh, video factory uh, video box for me. A Dangerous Woman. Yes. Yes. And then to close out the year, it was the indelible trilogy of Schindler's List, In the Name of the Father, and Beethoven's Second. Beethoven's second original song nominee for a really good song. Is it Randy Newman? Is it a Randy Newman song? No. It is uh the song credits are uh Carol Bayer Sager. Carol Bayer Sager. I was just about to say Cliff yes. Magnus. It's uh of course it's Carol James Ingrungman Dolly. Right. Right. Which is like this really like lovely, huge nineties ballad, like romance song that's great, and then all of a sudden Dolly starts singing about Beethoven and you're like, Wait, what? Carol Bayer Sager as a songwriter, um, wasn't the uh, Diane Warren of her day, but that's because she actually won an Oscar. Um wrote was nominated for writing the lyrics to Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me. Nominated for writing the lyrics for Through the Eyes of Love, love theme from Ice Castles. Both of those were with Marvin Hamlet. Through Hamlers. the Eyes of Love. Wins. You're, oh, that's you're on singing the on the wings of love. of love. You're singing on the Damn wings it. of love, which is also James Ingram, I'm pretty sure. Um, Through the Eyes of Love is the uh, Melissa Manchester, I'm pretty sure, song that isn't Don't Cry Out Loud. If it's if it's Melissa Manchester sure. and it's not Don't Cry Out Loud, it's Through the Eyes of or it's a uh, yeah Through the Eyes of Love. She wins the Oscar for uh, Arthur Between the Moon and New York City, the best that you can do, which is listen to the quartet who wins the Oscar for that: Carol Bayer Sager, Burt Bacharach, Peter Allen, and Christopher Cross. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> and then she picks up. Late career nominations for The Day I Fall in Love from Beethoven's Second. And then the next year is nominated for Look What Love Has Done from Junior. And that is why Junior is an Oscar nominee. Uh, Also with James Ingram for that. So I love... Oh, and she's also nominated along with David Foster for The Prayer from Quest for Camelot. Do we remember that? The uh, Andrea Bocelli-Celine Dion duet, The Prayer. Oh, that The Prayer. Yes, from Quest for Camelot. That is her last Oscar nomination. She was one of those people who would be like a guest judge on American Idol because Simon Cowell loves nothing better than um, songwriters who wrote, like, songs that made a shit ton of money in the 1980s um and it's just like i'm obsessed with that genre of like adult contemporary movie music that's why i love the uh, original song category from the 80s um i know i love that we came down this tangent road from beethoven second which was from uh universal uh, pictures in 1993 anyway we're back. A dinosaur story. Best original song was a better category when there were key changes, is all I'm saying. I agree with you. What was it? 1993. It was Beethoven's second. Oh, this was Philadelphia. Streets of Philadelphia. Yeah, double Philadelphia. Um, again, for poetic justice. Right. And what am I forgetting? It was a very... Um, song forward movie but most of the songs were like retro past like retro uh oh sleepless in seattle sleepless in seattle mark shaman nominated for sleepless in seattle that year yeah again getting the nomination for poetic justice i'm just happy that 
Janet Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis are all Oscar nominees. And will forever Absolutely. be. We're very happy about that. Uh, anything else you want to say about Carlito's Way and not uh, Carol Bayer Sager or Heart and Souls or Beethoven? Or Second, Poetic Justice. Or Poetic Justice. Um, Pacino, yeah, Pacino shouldn't be that, playing uh, a Puerto Rican it, character. We should just Let's just say that. Like... <laughs> That's not casting that should have, especially like it's like Al Pacino and then like his cronies, like Luis Guzman and John Leguizamo. And it's just like, yeah, like Pacino, like, no, we can't do that anymore. That's not a thing. That's not a thing we're doing. Yeah. Please cease and desist. Cease and Um, desist, indeed. Yeah. I I, I was happy that it was not as uh, scary and violent as though i mean this movie gets very violent all of a sudden like with sean penn beating a man skull yes with a crowbar yes um but yeah yeah not bad i liked it i don't again didn't like flip my lid for it or anything but it's pretty good did we want to talk uh imdb game yeah so guys, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a furry for all of hints. That's going to be the, the IMDb, IMDb game. game. Before we do that, though, I did pick up my little uh, notebook full of notes, and I did want to mention one thing, which was Paul Mazursky's cameo in this movie as the judge. In the opening scene. Oh, I miss that. And I love Paul Mazursky. Where the opening scene is Pacino is getting his conviction overturned on a technicality. And he's sort of giving this grandiose, sort of thumbing his nose in the justice system's face a little bit. And Rebhorn is the district attorney. And he's like, you know, scowling and whatnot. And Pacino starts like, I want to thank my lawyer. I want to thank whatever. And Mazursky just goes, you're not accepting an award, sir. And I thought that was just very funny. <laughs> um, and also Penelope Ann Miller's uh, white two-piece flowy armed uh, disco outfit that we see her first in this movie is uh, quite something. So credit to Audie Bronson Howard. And we're very happy. Well done. Good costumes. All right. IMDb game. Did you want to give or guess first? Uh, how about I give first this week? Why don't you? Why don't I? Okay, so we talked about Penelope Ann Miller. We talked about how she was basically the lady to (laughs) whatever the dude story was in a lot of her movies. This movie, truly, I didn't say this, but like, I I maybe have not seen, this is one thing against the movie, I've maybe not seen a movie where like, the lady was truly just the lady in a movie as much as Carlita's way. Um, So I looked for a movie where there was a dude to her protagonist. And the one that I came up with uh, from the movie Relic, her co-star Tom Sizemore. Oh, shit. Oh, Tom Sizemore is going to be tough. Okay. All right. Tom Sizemore. Now I have to start mentally separating the Tom Sizemore roles from the Michael Madsen roles in my brain, and that's going to be difficult to do. (laughs) All right. He's definitely in Saving Private Ryan. Is one of them Saving Private Ryan? Saving Private Ryan is correct. He's a real son of a bitch, I believe it turns out, in Strange Days, so I'm going to guess Strange Days. Strange Days is also correct. Okay. All right. We're on a roll. 
Tom Sizemore. The problem with Tom Sizemore is he doesn't have any lead roles. So you're just sort of sifting through the sandbox for supporting roles. And he's in a ton. He's in a ton of movies where he's a supporting player. Um, I can't imagine The Relic is actually one of those. So I'm not going to guess that. <sighs> Sizemore. Um... I feel like like late 90s sweet spot for him. Maybe early 2000s sweet spot. Um, what else is he in? He plays a lot of like scumbaggy types. I wonder why. <laughs> um, what do I remember him from? Now I almost want to like burn a couple guesses just to get uh, some hints. But, oh, well, we did Natural Born Killers. He's a very small role in that. But I'm going to guess, no, we just talked about Heart and Souls. Is Heart and Souls one of them? No, Damn Heart it. and Souls is not on there. Damn it. Should be. Should be. Absolutely should be. Yeah. It's one of his, uh, uh, you know, few uh, likable uh, guys. All right. But even in that movie, he's like the scummy one of the four. Yeah. Yes, it's true. But like in a very like, you know, mainstream comedy kind of a way. Sure, 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 sure. All right. Now I'm going to guess Natural Born Killers. No, Natural Born Killers is incorrect. So your years are 1997 and 2001. 2001. All right. You were walking up to the door of this, so I was going to be really mad if you got a perfect score on Tom Sizemore. Yeah. 2001. Maybe I'll wait. 97. 97 is sort of the sweet spot that I'm thinking. What's in 97? I think he's in Heat, but that's 95. Uh, wait. Can't wait for you to be mad. Is it the relic? It's the relic. Motherfucker, how is that possible? <laughs> how is genuinely how is that possible? I hate you. All right, two thousand one. Um, major Oscar nominee. Obviously not for Tom Size. Major Oscar nominee in two thousand one. Yes. Um. Oh, one. He's not. <laughs> It'd be wild as hell if he was in Gosford Park. I'll tell you what. Um, <laughs> he's not in In the Bedroom. He's not. Is he in A Beautiful Mind? He's not in A Beautiful Mind. Bigger cast than A Beautiful Mind. And not Gosford Park. Not Gosford Park. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's like the <laughs> Lord of the Manor in Gosford Park. <laughs> Oh, no, you were thinking of Michael Gambon. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, easily oh. confused. I can't tell you all the times that I've confused them. Oh, is he one of the bajillion men in Black Hawk Down? He is indeed one of the bajillion men in Black Hawk Down, and go. that is his fourth movie on Known For. All right. That's wild. That's the fucking relic. I hate you. All right. Uh, for you, sir, I have chosen... I went. I stuck with De Palma. We talked a little bit about the post Bonfire of the Vanities movies that he made. One of which 
was a film called Raising Cain, which is about um, a doctor who has a has an evil twin, right? That's the thing? Yes. And it's like, is it supernatural or is it just like he's the good it's twin just, and there's an evil it, twin? It, it, it's yeah, it's just it's very, very Or is um, it or is it split bizarre, personalities? It's is it twin or is it personalities? I think what it is is that it is split personalities, but you're led to believe until the end that it is like an evil twin gotcha. situation. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Anyway, the man who plays the lead role in that film is John Lithgow. And so I'm going to give you John Lithgow. A billion movies. One television show. Uh, is that... Well, he's on The Crown now. Well, not now. I feel like people don't really talk about that. I'm going to guess it's the one that probably he got the most awards for and say Third Rock from the Sun. Correct. Third Rock from the Sun. Okay, so... What was he Oscar nominated for? It's Garp, and I think there's more, but I forget what the other one or other two might have been. So I'm going to guess Garp. The World According to Garp. Correct. One of your trivia okay. questions from last week. Um, Has he been nominated for other Oscars? I feel like he has like three Oscar nominations. He has two Oscar nominations. Oh, okay. Back-to-back years. Oh. He's the evil conservative father in Kinsey, and that has shown up for people don't think it's going to be that um isn't he in it is he the he's the michael kane in interstellar right isn't he in interstellar i mean michael kane is also the michael kane in interstellar but yeah they're both in interstellar i'm gonna say interstellar incorrect but that's not a bad guess okay um hmm So I have two. One wrong guess so far. Mm-hmm. What, like, huge blockbuster movies has he been in? Because it's got to be something... There's got to be... With two more slots, there's got to be something that's big. Oh, wait! Is there any voice work? Nope. Okay, Why? so what no Shrek. That's shocking. Um, oh, yeah, not Shrek. He's in the Planet of the Apes movies, but I forget which one. He's in the first one of the new series, so Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Incorrect. That's a good guess. He is in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, though. He's James Franco's boss, right? Or something? Mentor? Father? I think he's James Franco's, like, dad or grandpa. Right. Okay. Uh, All right, so that's two wrong, so you will get years now. Your years are going to be 1993 and 2014. Okay. Uh, Well, 2014 is the same year as Interstellar. Wait, is that Love is Strange? Love is Strange. Iris Sachs' Love is Strange. God, I love that movie. So good. So, so So good. Would have been a great Oscar nomination for him. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay, what was the other year? 93. Oh, so the year we've been talking about. The year we've been talking about. The year where it Is happened. this an Oscar nominee? Um, I believe so. Let me check. 
My IMDb is being very temperamental for me lately. Uh, nominated for three Oscars, in fact. Okay. Huh. Three Oscars. Is, like, one of them screenplay? No. No, no. No, no, well, as in... Not that not that uh, high up the card. So, like, craft categories. Yes. Uh, only three... Right. Non-acting nominations from this year... Is... Three Oscar nominations, four Razzie nominations... Oh, okay. So, not a good movie. Um, I think... I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, I think I can see why the Razzie nominations materialized, but I think people remember this movie fondly, even if it's remembered. Why? Is it it one of the people that the Razzies hate? Yes. Is it like... um, Except that person didn't get a nomination. Lithgow It's not like... um, who did they hate in the nineties? Um, it's one of the like main people. It they can't hate be Sandler. It's too early. Right. Wait, is it Stallone? Yes. Is it Cliffhanger? It's Cliffhanger. Lithgow is the <laughs> villain flying around in a helicopter in Cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, wow. Oscar nominated for sound mixing, sound effects, editing, and visual effects. Razzie nominated for Worst Picture. It's also Rennie Harlan, so they also hate Rennie Harlan. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Worst Picture, Worst Supporting Actor, John Lithgow. Worst Supporting Actress, Janine Turner. And Worst Screenplay, which is Stallone co-wrote the screenplay. So they did nominate Stallone after all. But not his acting, interestingly enough. Wow. No Lord Farquaad. No Lord Farquaad. Yeah, interesting. Oh, boy. There we have it. That is uh, our episode, though, Chris. That's uh, nothing else you want to uh, add. Do you want? Hey, listen, Chris. Talk about our uh, our main mini series, uh, guys. Um, you know, I was actually thinking about it this week. At this point, you should know if you don't follow us on Twitter, our main mini series is coming, and we are going to be talking about the films of Focus Features. Our beloved focus features i you know i, I imagine i will put a drop in here of the uh of the focus features uh sound okay but um, you know what the 90s version is of that asmr opening of focus features it's what? the universal logo in the 90s yeah where it's like there's that fanfare that's not too like not too pomp and circumstance but like that beautiful globe like yeah. turning it feels like possibilities in motion before it turned into a uh cgi short film that starts in the deepest recesses of space and ends up uh circling planet earth before that happened (laughs) what would what would happen to like you know the tides and uh you know (laughs) if there was a big shine if there was a universal yeah universal floating above our uh atmosphere it's just like well i was supposed to get married next saturday but we're going to be under the n and universal all day that day so like it's going to be really have to wait a week we're going to have to wait a week exactly yeah 
Uh, but guys, yes, our May mini series this year, we're going to be doing focus features. We have five episodes in May, which gives us four titles we're going to be doing. And then we're going to kick it off with a listener's choice. Uh, Joe, talk about uh, the birth of focus features and how it started from two uh, indie offshoots. And then I'll give the options. Right. So one of the great interesting things about focus features is that it already had built up its reputation before it ever became focus features. It was originally formed from um, uh, a kind of a, there's an amalgam, right? There was uh, Gramercy Pictures, Polygram, Good Machine, and then October Films. And they were all sort of wrapped into an entity that was called USA Films for a few years, had some pretty big successes there. And then in 2002, became focus features so yeah so for our listeners choice we're going to have three films from the october films era and then one from usa films so it's going to be the last seduction which is the 1994 film with linda fiorentino that aired on hbo and was thus declared ineligible for film awards which is too bad because she's great high art the ali sheedy um rada mitchell patricia clarkson movie that was from 1998, October Films. Ali Sheedy wins a Independent Spirit Award for that film. Very good movie. Uh, the Muse, the Albert Brooks film with Sharon Stone, Golden Globe nominee, also October Films. And then for the USA Films era, will be represented by the Sigourney Weaver, Julianne Moore, um, Oprah Book Club, Oprah Book Club, Dead Child in Suburbia film, A Map of the World. So it's an interesting one. I don't think there is a runaway front runner among those four. I will be very we interested chose to see. We this well in particularly to like create some uh, competition. I think it'll be pretty heated for all four. Yeah. So support which one you want to hear us talk about the most, which one you think will be the most interesting episode, uh, maybe your favorite of the four, whichever way you want to vote, vote. But uh, we will be happy you can to do, do so now on our Twitter choose. account. Yeah, had underscore Oscar underscore buzz on Twitter. I'll mention it again in a second when we do our outro. But uh, yeah, we very excited. To starting today, choose. in uh, today being uh, Monday, <coughs> the uh, whatever the Monday is. Uh, and then uh, monday the 19th monday the monday 19th, the 19th. Um, through midday on the 20th uh sorry to listeners who don't uh jump immediately on the bandwagon or no the poll is starting on the 20th yes so we'll yeah have it through midday on the 21st hop on and over. we'll announce the winner all right that is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. This episode is supported in part by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to supporting storytellers. Authentic stories can inspire new ideas, entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their program and plan your visit for award season weekend, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L and also on Letterboxd under the same name. I am also on Twitter at uh, Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. 
I'm on Letterboxd as the same name, Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So quit hiding out on that escalator at Grand Central Station and write us something nice, won't you? That is all for this week. Shoot us something nice. Yes, shoot us something nice, please. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz.